Anyway, welcome. My name is Steve Marshman, and we are going to get started in Romans chapter 14. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the report from Jose from Romania. We thank you that so many are coming to know you, Lord Jesus, and they now have a new light in their life. We thank you for that. We ask you to be our teacher today. Enlighten the scriptures to our minds. Help us to understand what you would have for us. And we all said together, Amen. Well, today is a message about unity, as, as Jose said, and we are going to start right off by reading the scriptures. Now, Romans 14 through the middle of 15 is all one big, long message, and we're not going to cover it all today. We're just going to cover the first three verses of Romans 14. Uh, so we'll read that in just a second, and then we're going to skip down and read the end of his argument in 15, verse 7. And what we'll see uh, over the next couple of weeks is Jose is going to cover in the big chunks. But we're going to lay a foundation today. So if you're with me, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. That's interesting. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. And then skip down to chapter 15, verse 7 with me. We'll just read that one verse. This is the end of the long argument. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise and glory to God. Well, if you're new to the church, you might read this and think, what does Paul have against vegetarians? I mean, come on, he calls them weak in faith. Paul, that's not very nice. And in 21st century or, uh, Oregon, there's probably some people that are here that are vegetarian. And right now you're like, oh, I think I'm gonna leave. Well, don't. I have good news for you. This passage, listen to this, this passage has nothing to do with whether or not you should eat meat. It actually doesn't. It sounds like it, but I'll explain that in a moment. What is this passage about? Let's look at it in context. We always talk about that. First of all, Paul is addressing the church, believers, the church in Rome, followers of Jesus. And this teaching is for the church, the church then and the church Today, some of the Jews were still following the Old Testament Jewish food laws. They had fought, they've accepted Christ, they're following Jesus, but they're still following the Old Testament Jewish food laws. And because of a difference of, of opinion, there's disputes that arise within the church. Now, to really understand what's going on here, you don't need to turn there, but we need to Think back to the beginnings of Romans 12. Remember, that started this big second half of Romans. And in Romans 12, the first couple verses, Paul says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, the earthly world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So in this passage, what we're going to get from Paul is a real-life case study, a real-life case study on how we are to renew our brains, renew our minds, and how we're to actually live together and deal with real-life disagreements. So to frame our discussion about this, about how 
real life works. You and I know this, but just as a reminder, what Paul's telling us is the pattern of this world that we live in is disputes, disrespect, and condemnation. And the pattern that Jesus wants us to be transformed into is acceptance, respect, and no condemnation. Now, you and I know this to be true. All you have to do is read a newspaper or watch the news and watch how disputes, disrespect flies all over the place. People are condemning one another all over the place. And why is that? It's because humans are bent. We're broken. We know that. We're bent to argue quarrel, treat others with disrespect, and judge unfairly. We do that all the time. But the way of Jesus is much, much better. Over and over in this section of scriptures, we see this phrase, accept one another. If you look at the beginning of 14 verse 1, it's, uh, Paul says, accept the one, accept the one. And the end of 14 verse 3, why? For God has accepted them. And then in 15 verse 7 that we jump down to at the end of the long argument, he says, accept one another just then, excuse me, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise and glory to God. So here's the deal. Accepting doesn't mean we always agree, right? You can disagree with somebody and still accept them. It means we have real true, real differences of opinion, but we choose to live in unity anyway. Now, let's take a look into this dispute that was going on with the vegetables and the meat. Because uh, it's kind of funny when you read it, you know, 2,000 years later. But what, what's going on is Paul talks about two groups of people. First group were weak in faith, the minority group. And then the second or strong in faith. He uses the word strong uh, in verse 1 of chapter 15, by the way. So there's a weak in faith, a minority, the strong in faith, a majority. And Paul identifies himself as part of the strong group, the majority group. Now what's going on is the weaker group is saying they shouldn't eat meat because of the Old Testament food laws. Now we don't know exactly what was going on, but we have kind of two choices. The first choice is that the meat probably came from the marketplace. This is like in Corinthians where the meat had been sacrificed to idols and a good Jewish person wouldn't even think about eating that. The second choice would be it's possible that the meat wasn't prepared in a kosher manner with the correct rituals that uh, a Jewish butcher, if you will, would prepare the meat. So it wasn't kosher. Either way, it actually doesn't really matter. Either way, a good uh, Old Testament following Jewish persons not about to touch this meat. But the real question here then, it's not really about eating meat or eating vegetables. It's about this. How does the Old Testament apply to Christians, whether it's first century Christians or 21st century Christians? Do we even need to read it? In my Bible, the Old Testament's about a thousand pages. And the New Testament is about 300 pages. And when I first became a Christian, a well-meaning but very incorrect friend told me, you know, you're a follower of Jesus. You didn't even read that. And, you know, if you're here and you're a student, a middle schooler, high schooler, college student, if someone tells you you don't need to read 1,000 pages, what do you do? You skip it, right? Uh, but 
he was wrong. We really do need to read the Old Testament. And we'll get into that. Why? Here's Jesus' clear, clear teaching about how a Christian is to regard the Old Testament. He says this in Matthew 5, verse 17. Don't need to turn there. Jesus speaking. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When Jesus says, by the way, law or the prophets, he's speaking of the whole Old Testament. And what's happening here is Jesus is starting to explain to his followers is how does the Old Testament apply to you and me, 21st century Christian Jesus followers. So this is the short answer to the question, how does the Old Testament apply to us? It's this, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. That's the short, simple answer. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish it because it wasn't wrong, but it's fulfilled. It's complete. Now, I know some of you are sitting here going, Steve, that doesn't help me very much. And to be honest with you, I heard this for years, and it didn't help me very much either. Because what does that mean, fulfilled? What you're really asking is, well, which of these Old Testament commands should we follow? And which ones do we not need to follow? And why do we need to read it? How does it really play out in our lives? And I'm here to hopefully explain that to you. The short answer is Jesus fulfilled the, the Old Testament. The longer answer is this. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament and ushered in the new covenant. Jesus ushered in the new covenant. And we really truly can't understand the new covenant unless we understand the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The Old Testament actually prophesizes about the New Covenant coming in many, many places. The most clear place is Jeremiah 31. You don't need to turn there because it's repeated in Hebrews 8. If you want to turn to Hebrews 8, you can if you'd like uh, because it's a long quote. In fact, the quote of Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8, is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's the longest quote. Now, that may, or, that may be a coincidence, maybe not, but I think it's interesting that the most important part of the Bible, Jesus coming to save the world in the New Covenant, is actually brought forward into the New Testament with this long quote. So I'm going to put a portion of it on the screen. It comes from Hebrews 8, and I'm we're not going to read the whole thing because we just don't have the time today, but we're going to read just a little bit of it and then try to figure out what's going on with the new, new, uh, new covenant. Hebrews 8, uh, start, starting in the middle of verse 8. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. The Lord's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. By calling the covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. So here's the trick, and this is something that we just need to think a little bit and understand what's going on here. What is this relationship? The people of Israel broke the Old Testament law over and over and over again. And you know that when you read the Old Testament, right? It's just rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. But the interesting part is God follows and chases after the people of God, uh, people of Israel over and over and over again. So that's an interesting thing in and itself to know. But know this, the Old Testament commands weren't a mistake. They weren't 
wrong. The problem was, was, was the Israelites. They disobeyed. So here's what God does in his amazing love and grace. He replaces the letter of the law with the heart of the law. And then he puts that heart of the law in our minds and he writes it on our hearts. So we internalize the spirit of the law, if you will. Now, as we look at this next slide, this is what I want you to see. There's a giant continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But we want to know what makes the New Covenant new, right? There's some different stuff, but just let's look real quickly at some of the things that are the same between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. First thing that's the same is it's the same God. There is some bad theology that you hear every once in a while that the God of Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. That's absolutely wrong. It's the same God. Yahweh is Yahweh, Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's the same relationship all throughout the story of God. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, God repeatedly says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the relationship that God has for us. It's also the same salvation by faith in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And this might help some of you the most. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, if we say you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, if it's Jesus that saves us, how does somebody in the Old Testament get saved? Jesus hasn't showed up yet. Well, how does somebody in the Old Testament get saved? By the same faith that we have. The difference is, is their faith looks forward to Messiah. Our faith looks backwards to Messiah. And know this. If, this never happened, but if an Israelite was able to follow all the laws of the commands and the commands of the Old Testament. If they were able to follow all of them perfectly, they still would not be saved. The commands... And the, the laws of the Old Testament were not meant for salvation. Faith is the only way to be with God in the age to come. That's the only way. And we, we get this mistaken thing that if they had only followed the laws, then they would be saved. No, that's not true. The reason why God gave the people of Israel all these laws is to show them how to live as they entered the promised land. And it was for their good and how to live in a new land. And we don't have time to go into all that. But what we want to do now is what's different about the new covenant? What makes the new covenant new? The first one is that we now have a new and superior high priest. If you remember in the old covenant, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies once per year. And that person was a man. He had to go through all sorts of sacrifices and rituals and cleanings to be in the presence of God for one moment of one day. Now we have a new and superior high priest, and his name is Jesus, and we could be in the presence of God every single day. That's mind-blowing. We have a new final sacrifice that's Jesus. So it's interesting that the high priest is also the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. So we don't have to sacrifice. You notice we don't sacrifice goats and lambs in here? I mean, 
I mean, we, we do have barbecue, but that's not what's going on, right? Uh, we're not doing, we're not doing, taking an unblemished land and sacrificing it to God because Jesus did that and completed that. So the Old Testament, old chapter, that's been completed. And finally, the other thing that makes the new covenant new is we have new universal access to the Holy Spirit. By universal access, we mean Jew and Gentile. Most of us, probably all of us maybe, are not Jewish. We're Gentiles. We're non-Jews. We have just as much access to the Holy Spirit as any Jewish person did going to the temple in the Old Testament. Because we have a new access to the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the new covenant really absolutely off the charts amazing. So this, this new covenant, when did it get established? When Jesus died on the cross. It completed all the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. So we no longer have to wonder how does the Old Testament apply to Christians, it absolutely applies, but the stipulations of it, we don't have to follow like Jewish people did because Jesus came and fulfilled all of that. So we don't have to worry about what we eat. All foods are clean, says Paul and Jesus. Even the meat that's not prepared in a kosher manner, we can eat it. But notice this. This is super, super important. Paul was probably one of the smartest theologians that ever lived. He didn't make this big argument and he didn't come up with this brilliant argument of why you don't have to eat meat. He says this. He says, accept one another as Christ accepted you. He goes big picture on them. Specifically, Paul says this. The people who eat meat, he tells them, don't look down on the people or treat contempt the people who, who aren't eating meat. And he tells the people who only eat vegetables, don't condemn or judge those who are eating meat. This is a call to unity. Paul could have pulled out the first uh, 11 chapters of Romans that he had written by now and go, read this, understand this. You guys are being dumb. You're being stupid. He doesn't do that. He's, he's, he calls the people to unity and says, this is how we're supposed to live. Why? Because Jesus accepts us. We all have warts. You know, I, I was thinking about this this morning and I realized every single one of my Christian friends is a sinner. Every single one of them. And God accepted every one of them. Isn't that just, it's just crazy. God accepts us despite all of our warts and our failures. And we are accepted by him even though we're not perfect because he's adopted us into his family. So how do we take all this stuff about meat and vegetables and apply it to today, 21st century Oregon? To my knowledge, I haven't heard anybody having a dispute over whether or not to eat meat or vegetables because it was sacrificed to pagans. If anybody's heard about that, let me know about that. But I don't think that's going on, right? But we do have disputes, don't we? We do have disputes. Not too much at our church at 26 West. We're, I'm, I'm very pleased to report to you that amongst the staff and the elder team, we have an amazing amount of unity. We, re, we really do. I'm not just saying that because it's the right state to think. We have a lot of unity. And I sense a lot of unity with, uh, within the church body. But that said, just like going to the gym, the best time to get in shape is when you're in shape. Right? Isn't it, it's a lot easier to stay in shape than to 
get in shape after you've gotten out of shape, right? You got to go through that whole sore muscle thing and all that stuff. It's a real pain. So what do we have disputes of? I just made a quick list of my years of being on the leadership team here at the churches. And uh, I'm just going to rapid fire through some of these just to, to, to tickle your, your dispute meter and uh, open Pandora's box a little bit. Here's some things that we've had to discuss over the years. Baptism. At what age should somebody get baptized? 10, 12, 8. Communion. How often should we do it? Once a week, once a month. Should we go to the table? Should we pass the communion? Tattoos. That used to be a thing, believe it or not, about a decade ago. There was all sorts of people saying, oh, some of those guys up on stage have tattoos. <laughs> Prophecy, healing, speaking in tongues. What's our view on that? Creation. Do we support seven literal day creation and the earth's only, you know, thousands of years old instead of millions and billions of years old? What's our view on that? Music. Why don't we have country worship music? I mean, <laughs> what about free will versus God's sovereignty? How do we solve that tension? Entertainment. Is it okay for a Christian to go to an R-rated movie? Gay weddings. Is it wise to attend your gay friend's wedding? Politics. It gets real quiet. <laughs> All I want to say is no political party is aligned with the Bible. And we do not want to mistake the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America. Close. Can a preacher wear a hat? While preaching, shorts, I was so tempted. Someone's got a cowboy hat on. This is awesome. I actually lived in Texas for two years, and I have a cowboy hat. Sorry to point you out, not, not to embarrass you. but uh, All right, everybody look. Now everybody's got to look. All right, look at that. I mean, that's, a, that, that's, that's nice looking. It's awesome. Mine's, mine's all ratty. Mine's a work cowboy hat. And I was really tempted to wear it with shorts today just to see what your response would be. <laughs> um, my wife and daughter said, no, Dad, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. So what do we do when we have these disputes? I'm going to give you a little uh, uh, technique of what we do. Thank you, Dr. Gary Brashears. It's called the four Ds. And I think you'll find this incredibly helpful if you don't already know it. The four Ds are die for, divide for, debate for, decide for. And what, the way this goes is whenever something comes up, we look at it and say, should we die for it? For example, the deity of Christ, that's a die for. We're going to the mat on that one. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King of King. Lord is Lord. We're not ever going to fall back on that. What about a divide for? Baptism. Some churches believe you have to be baptized to be saved. We don't. We think it's a good thing and you should do it. You should absolutely do it. Uh, but it's not a requirement for salvation. So it would be kind of hard for us to worship with, you know, have a church that has both of those beliefs in it. But then there's a ton of debate forwards. We already mentioned a couple of them. Creation, what's, when and how did God create the world? We debate that. Or decides, you know, we decide if we take communion monthly or weekly. Here we decided to take it weekly. And catch this, this is important. Our goals as church, le our goal as church leadership is to push as many things down the list as we can. There are some things that should say, stay, die for, and divide for. But as many things that we could turn into debates or decides, the better. That's what Paul did in Romans 14. I said it was a real-life case study, right? He could have made the meat-vegetable thing, which was really, do we follow the Old Testament food laws or not? He could have made that divisive. He could have raised that to the divide for uh, a level. But he didn't. He stated his opinion. 
He's in this strong group. He, do, he believes you can eat the meat, but he didn't make it divisive. He made it a debate and let people talk it over. And look, 2,000 years later, it's, it's not a big deal for it. Specifically, Paul tells us a few things when we have disputes. He says this, don't look down on others or treat them with contempt. Don't condemn or judge others. Instead, accept them as Christ accepted you. See, in any dispute, often there's a mainstream majority opinion and an outlier opinion. And if you're in the mainstream view, then you don't want to look down on the outlier because they're the minority group. Or if you're in the outlier view or you're in the minority view, you don't want to say, ah, these people just don't get it and condemn the mainstream. So how do we apply that passage, that principle today in our church? How do we accept other believers that we disagree with? And the word here, don't, don't miss this, the word accept literally means, in the original language, it means receive or welcome or treat with kindness. The picture you should have in your mind when you say accept someone is to welcome them into your home with hospitality, to welcome, not just play and just, you know, doing this for show, but literally welcome them into your home. And a word, the Bible word for that is grace, right? Because when we are having disputes with people, we often, you know, we don't feel like accepting them, right? Our emotions are wild up. So we need to pass some grace onto him. And it's because of God's grace that he accepts us, right? Paul says, accept them just the way Jesus accepted you. Well, he accepted you and me by his grace. We don't deserve it, right? Grace is unmerited favor. We do not deserve to be accepted by the almighty God, but he accepts us anyway. So we're going to take a quick, close look at grace and a few dimensions of grace. And then we're going to try to imitate it because Paul says, accept people as Christ accepted you. He's saying, imitate Christ, imitate God. We're going to try to imitate God's grace today. But before we do that, I want to get your minds thinking because we've been mostly talking about disputes within the church and kind of churchy things. But disputes also happen between believers because this is talking about between believers in school, middle school, high school, college. You might be in school with a Christian friend and you're having disputes about different things. You might be at work and have a coworker that says he's a Christian, but there's not much evidence of that. Or you have Christian friends and you're at a party and you're saying, I don't like what's going on here. Or the big one, marriage. You're hopefully married, married to a Christian spouse and there's a dispute, there's a rift, there's something going on where we need to deal with it. So we're going to look at grace in three dimensions. We're going to look at three different dimensions of grace. The first one is very familiar to all of us. It's what most of us think about. The first one is God's grace gives unconditional acceptance. This is the one that allows us to be saved. It's because of grace that we are saved. God initiates our salvation. You know that, right? If God didn't start the salvation plan, we would have nothing. 
absolutely nothing. There's no work we can do. There's no list of commands. Even all the ones of the Old Testament, you could do all those. That's not going to save you. That would be legalism. Legalism is following a bunch of do's and don'ts. And God's plan of salvation isn't legalism. It's grace. So when we have disputes with other believers, we first need to acknowledge that that other believer has a position and an identity with Christ that's the same as ours. The person we're dealing with that we're having this dispute with is fully accepted in God's family. And catch this, in light of the day, our series, in light of the age to come, in light of the day where you stand in the new heaven with Jesus, that person's going to be by your side. That might change the way you deal with them, knowing that the Lord Almighty is saying this person's going to be in heaven with you. So you might want to solve this dispute before you get to heaven. Um, Our posture when we look at this person should be grace and acceptance instead of high blood pressure and irritation. So that's our first dimension. And most of us kind of know that if you've been in church very long. But there's other dimensions to God's grace that we tend not to think about very much. This this next one is, is super important. God's grace gives us the power to do good. God's grace gives us the power to do good. In Acts chapter 6, talking about Stephen, describing him, it says, He was full of grace and power, and he performed great signs and wonders. Where does the power come from? The Holy Spirit. And it's given to all believers by God's grace. Do we deserve the Holy Spirit living inside of us? No. I mean, it's one of the beauties of reading the Old Testament. For the Israelites to get into the presence of God, I mean, wow, it's, it's hundreds of pages in my Bible describing what has to happen, right? Build their tabernacle, do this, build this, wash this, sacrifice this, this ceremony, and then finally we get into the presence of God. And we have that with us every single day living inside us. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit, divine helper, living inside of you, could you think of anything else that would be better in solving a dispute? I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? The gift of the Spirit in us. So what actions, and I said, yeah, and it's, I'm not talking about a list of do's and don'ts, but what actions, what love, what powerfully good thing can you do with this person that you're having a dispute with to maybe get some resolution? And it might not even be a big dispute. It might be a little dispute. Vicki and I, uh, when we were first married and we had the little ones around, uh, you know, life gets hard. And I noticed that we have a lot of kids in the kids area, so I'm pretty sure that this applies to many of us in this room. When you have the little ones... You know, sleep deprivation is is kind of the way you live, right? Because you work, eat, sleep, take care of the kids, and that's your life. And we were having this little dispute about when I got home from work. I had one of those jobs, unfortunately, that was 10 or 11 hours a day, and I got home dead tired, and Vicky was dead tired. By by that time, she had left her job and was a stay-at-home mom. And as soon as I got home, she just wanted to give me the two kids. And all I wanted to do was take a breath, right? Back in those days, I had to wear a suit. So, you know, I'd find myself at home and the kids are still all over me, drooling all over my suit and tying. I'm like, ah. You know, I just felt like literally out of, the, out of the frying pan into the fire type thing. 
And we, there was some tension between us. Like, how do we do this? And then we finally realized that, wait a minute, you know, we have the ability to solve this problem. And we just prayed and asked God, how do we do this? And simple solution, this is what we came with. When I got home, Vicky gave me 10 to 15 minutes, change clothes, take a breath. And then I got the kids. And then she could take a breath because she's been with them all the time. And they're, you know, obviously, you know, little kids are ready for a break, right? But here's the thing. My heart got changed because I, I was spiraling down in this season of, having a hard day at work and then driving home on the combat zone called Highway 26. Uh, and then you, you arrive at home like, oh, the kids are going to be out of control because they're, they're pent up and it's been raining all day. And, it's, and, oh, and I didn't have a good attitude about it. And Vicky was tired and she didn't have a great attitude about it. But what happened after this small thing in agreement, we solved this dispute by the power of the Holy Spirit. It got to be where I'm driving home and I'm pumped. Like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to get rid of this goofy suit. Um, I'm going to get, you know, a big glass of water. And then I'm just going to enjoy these kids. And Vicki was the same way. She looked forward to me getting home because she knew at about 10 or 15 minutes after I got home, here they are. <laughs> They're yours. Okay, third dimension of grace. The third dimension of grace is a forgiveness of sins. Do we deserve to have our sins forgiven? No. Why does God forgive our sins? Because he loves us and he fills us with his, with his beautiful grace. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says this. Because of Jesus, we have our sins forgiven. In him, we have rede uh, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So you and I know this. When you're in the middle of the dis a dispute, it doesn't matter what area of your life it's in, sin often raises its ugly head. And as we were praying about this this morning, a thought came to me. Pride is the enemy of unity. Pride is the enemy of unity. Whatever tension, whatever dispute, whatever quarrel you have going on in any area of your life, if pride is there, it needs to be smashed like guacamole. We could imitate God's grace pretty easily just by forgiving others when they sin against this. And remember Jesus instructed that to us in the Lord's Prayer. Remember he said, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. In my opinion, uh, it's just one man's opinion, I think this is maybe the most important part of God's grace in the, in the area of acceptance. Because whenever you have disputes between two people, it's something that Satan enjoys. He likes that. He wants you to be at each other. I think it's important for married couples. I think it's important if you have a high schooler at home. I think it's important in work in both directions. If you're a high schooler or a parent of a high schooler, you've had disputes, right? You absolutely have had disputes. If you're married for longer than a day or maybe a week, you've had disputes, right? And often they're over the silliest things, aren't they? They're just over dumb things, but sometimes they're over big things. But if there was sin and there probably was at some point along the road, anger, deception, pride, selfishness, whatever this sin is, a good place to start is to confess, repent, 
and ask to be forgiven and then be ready to be the one who actually offers forgiveness with no strings attached. Uh, parents, if you have a if you have middle school or high schooler here and you mess up, the best thing you can ever do to teach that young child how to grow in Christ is to go there to them and say, I messed up, I confessed. This is more than I'm sorry. This is like, I messed up, this is what I did, this is how it hurt you, will you forgive me? It goes a long way to growing in Christ. And we do that in our marriage relationships as well, over and over and over again, because we sin over and over and over again. So we're gonna do this in, 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 in response. Go ahead and close up your Bibles, you're not gonna need them anymore. Uh, the band can make their way, way up. I'm gonna ask just one simple question today. One simple question. As we've talked about unity, as we've talked about God's grace, as we've talked about the dimensions of God's grace, has the Lord, the Holy Spirit brought to mind some person? I'm asking you today, who have we not fully accepted? You ask yourself, who have I not fully accepted the way Jesus has fully accepted? There's a good chance there's somebody coming to mind today. And if there is, this is what I want you to do. Pray to the Lord to give you clarity about that situation. To really open up your eyes, what's really going on. You may need to go to that person, ideally face to face. That is not Facebook, not email, face to face. Now, if they're a thousand miles away, maybe you have to make a phone call. That'd be choice two. If they don't have a phone, then maybe an email. But talk to the person, a live conversation, and have this discussion with them. What you're asking is, is there a way for me to accept this person like God accepted me? Because they're a believer. They're, they're, they're going to be in the new heaven and the age to come with us. Is there a good work you can do for that person? An undeserved good work. Just because God's grace abounds and you love them and they love you and God loves them? Or do you need to ask forgiveness or maybe offer forgiveness? You know, I don't know what your situation is, but as we pray and as we worship, ask the Almighty God, who is this person that I need to go talk to? And then be obedient. And if nobody comes to mind, well done. File this away. It's going to happen. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. I'm just saying reality, right? It's reality in the broken world we live in. But one day we'll be in the age to come where we don't have to mess with this stuff anymore. When all things are good and all sin is gone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have accepted us. You fully accepted us to the point where you died for us and we're going to spend eternity with you. And we are so very grateful for that. Lord, help us to treat others the way you've treated us. Help us to accept others the way you've treated us. Help us to find ways through the power of the Holy Spirit to do good for others. Lord, help us to have a spirit of forgiveness, asking forgiveness and giving forgiveness because you've forgiven us all of our wonderful 